I've been challenging power my entire career. So it was really interesting to see people climbing buildings, yeah. blocking ships, doing all the things that a lot of people don't have the courage to do to make sure that we have a better planet. Because for me, as an African, it's been very difficult to have the climate conversations. Very, very difficult. Because I keep asking, the West developed by killing our planet. Mm -hmm. Africa is just starting to develop. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that we're not being penalized because of all the sins of everybody else that's now at a level that we are aspiring to get to. Yeah. So it's a very difficult conversation for me and that's why I believe technology has some of the power to make sure that we can still continue developing while taking into consideration the environment. This is season one of Memberful Design, a show about fire starters, sparking initiatives that have a lasting impact. It was formerly known as Verwondering, an award-winning Dutch design podcast. Now we're bringing it to the international stage in English. Discover what it takes to let your plan succeed and create meaningful connections. The power of the collective requires the commitment of the individual. In every episode, Harold Dunning, founder of design studio Momkai and co-founder of journalism platform The Correspondent, talks to other designers, creative directors, artists and entrepreneurs about the impact of their work. We want to hear from you too. You can visit memberful.design to share your thoughts and check out the show's gallery. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to Memberful Design on your favorite podcast platform. And sign up for our newsletter at memberful.design. I've always seen time off the grid as a blessing. High up in the mountains, walking for days on end. From alpine hut to alpine hut. Crossing valleys, climbing peaks. No signal, no problem. Disconnected, I was at my best. But what if you never connected in the first place? What if you can't chat to a close relative, learn through a YouTube video, or call team members remotely via Zoom? How remote are you then from the modern experience? According to the UN, way over 2 billion people, or more than a third of the world's population, have never used the internet, despite the pandemic driving people online. True, COVID was a big connectivity boost. Close to a billion new folks use the internet for the first time. But even amongst those new faces, hundreds of millions might only go online sometimes, as they face unreliable connection speeds or use shared devices. In 2020, in Africa alone, half the population had no access to the internet. Why would this concern you? Because a fair and free internet benefits us all. Access to global technologies can save lives. It helps people thrive, to live their best lives, and it empowers collectives to speak out, to rise up, to resist, to do better as a species. Enter Priscilla Chomba Kenewa, my fabulous guest today, who straps on her boots, goes out there, and truly connects with communities. She's hard to put into a box. A chief technology officer, entrepreneur, fitness coach, mentor, traveler, mother, adventurer, she has worked in 75 countries on six continents for over 20 years. Her strategies help push digital transformation forward. Ebola outbreak in Liberia, she's there building SMS platforms. Earthquake in Nepal, she got right down to business. 
and climbed the giant mountain while she was there. Priscilla has worked for UNICEF, the World Food Programme and ActionAid International. Living in Nairobi, she's now the global CTO of Greenpeace International, the largest environmental organization in the world, with over 3 million members. She's always been passionate about tech, the software and the hardware, hooking up cables, drilling holes. When she was 19, she climbed onto rooftops in rural Zambia and put solar panels on herself. Discover how to design with collectives in mind, working towards digital inclusion, because communities often don't speak tech. Meet the translator that helps to expand access. Priscilla, welcome to the studio of Mumkai. Thank you. I like that last part. <laughs> Especially like it. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. What, what makes your heart sing? Oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> Why would you ask my own question to me? Um, you know the answer already. It's seeing young people thrive, regardless of who they are, what they like, what their preferences are, or where they're from. Being from Zambia myself, yeah. I'm always, and having worked in the development sector, I'm always really keen to see how globally technology has made it very easy to see that a young person in Zambia is quite similar to a young person mm -hmm. in the Netherlands, even if they are very different and coming from very different contexts. So for me, seeing that connection really makes me happy. You have a background in tech. Uh, you used to be uh, a biggest advocate of technology as, as just an enabler. And you have moved beyond that stage. How did this change of you came about for you? Do you want the long version or the short version? Hey, we have time. We can we do the long time. version, yeah. So uh, <laughs> let me give you a bit of the story. The story is um, when I finished college, I went to work with a friend. He had a little IT company in his living room yeah. back in the day when antivirus was sold on a disk. So yeah. part of my job was yeah. walking around door to door checking offices. Do you have a computer? If they did, then I tried to sell them the antivirus and that sort wow, of thing. Wow, all the disk. Yes, yes. So for those who don't understand what's going on, it's fine. Don't worry. Just be thankful that we no longer have disks. Um, and then I joined the United Nations World Food Program during a big drought in my country of Zambia. There was a huge drought. So the government declared a national emergency, lots of hunger, food shortages. Yeah. I was 19. Loved the job. It was a lot of, like you said, climbing on roofs to install solar panels, drilling holes through walls to run cables, all of the things that an IT person does. When I moved to UNICEF, I realized that traditional IT, in the sense of making sure that tech was working, was no longer enough. Mm -hmm. So what I started doing was sit and listen to the challenges that were actually happening in communities and then start to design programs and projects where technology is now helping to accelerate the results that the folks who were in communities were trying to solve. So things like there's no sanitation facilities in this village. How do we make sure we can get there faster? Young people are getting uh, exposed to HIV and AIDS at a really alarming rate. How do we use technology to help slow that down? So very different way of mm -hmm. looking at technology rather than just infrastructure, but more designing programs that work for communities and solve big challenges. And is the core in that also just simply talking with people, going to people? A lot of it is listening. So not even talking, more yeah, listening. Oh, yeah, yeah. So more, what are the challenges? And once I hear the challenges, the question becomes, is there potential for tech to just shift something. We all understand the power of technology. So for mm -hmm. example, we have a remote area that's very hard to reach, but we need to check the progress on facilities that are being set up there by the 
local communities themselves. So why not put tablets in the hands of chiefs and they can send the data real time? Mm -hmm. So we can monitor this village is doing really well. What are the lessons? Why are they doing really well versus this village? So a lot of seeing what the challenges are. So in this case, for example, the challenge is we can't go to those communities often. It's too much. But if we can get the data real time, and this is back in 2000 and I don't know, five, six. Yeah. So something like that is really transformational in the way you get results faster. So that's sort of my passion, making sure we understand how technology can solve real world big challenges. Yeah, and I can imagine it's often not only about uh, the right tools, but also changing the way that people work. How do you go about enabling that, that change? Like uh, someone can get a tablet, but if they don't know how to use that, how, how do you go about that? And also sometimes it's asking, is it a tablet they need? Yeah. <laughs> because what I have realized is a lot of us have a solution. And this is not just nonprofit. I've mm -hmm. seen this with tech startups a lot. We come up with a big idea. We have the solution. And then we start running around looking for a problem to wrap around yeah. the solution. So sometimes it's listening. That's why I insisted on listening and finding the problem before you design the solution. Yeah. So sometimes you will find it's not tablets. I saw this happen once where we found the solution, which was there was a company that was designing tablets for young kids to learn mm -hmm. on. And so we loved the idea, ran into the community with it. And within a few months, weeks, really, there was no electricity in that place. So what are we Could doing? never charge. It will never charge. Yeah. They will use it for like the week, but the battery <laughs> life will last and then it's over. Yeah. So sometimes wrapping a solution around a problem doesn't really fix anything. We did eventually go back with solar panels, but we could have designed it better from the start. To have the solar panels come with it, like to yes. think of the energy source and the tool. Yes. Yeah. And then we also realized that while we were there, we started to realize these kids are using these tablets for... 15, 20 minutes a day, mm -hmm. and then it's a waste of everybody's time. So we actually then redesigned to make their mothers start learning financial literacy on the same tablets. So sometimes listening and finding other problems that you can solve is really a big thing in the line of work. I'm constantly thinking, sure, we've solved one problem. What else exists? How can we change things? How do we shift things? And a lot of times we've implemented tech, tech solutions they haven't been perfect from the start. Yeah. So we always have to constantly iterate, constantly change, figure out what we're getting wrong, what we're getting right. And do you have then teams that go about that? Like, do you have like uh, people in the field, people in a, in a main office? How, how would you go about that? Well, so it depends on the place where I'm working. Yeah. So for example, in Greenpeace, we have very big technology teams. So we have people who are actually in different places. And it doesn't have to be the technology team. Mm -hmm. I always say the technology team can provide the infrastructure, can help design the solution, but there are other teams within the organization. And one of the big challenges a lot of organizations have, particularly in nonprofit, is silos. I think this tends to happen in others as well, but it's a particularly big problem for us. So the people who are working We're on separate water... separate from each other, yeah. Okay. Totally separate. Yeah. The guys working yeah. on fixing water problems in some community are not speaking to the tech folks. Yeah. So they don't even know the possibilities that yeah. exist. The tech folks are too busy fixing the internet or whatever they are fixing, so they don't know that there's a challenge that they can contribute to. So I find that part of my role is always... How do we start to collaborate better? How do we start to create visibility around what everybody's doing? And even now, Greenpeace has a very big technology ambition. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the 
work streams we're having, breaking silos, how do we make sure we're collaborating and having visibility into different things. So normally when people see technology, they see, you know, infrastructure, coding and so on. But whenever I see technology, I look more at the cultural aspect of how the organization is working. Because I don't think technology belongs to a department. Yeah. In this day and age, everybody should be a technologist in any organization. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's the same as that everyone has to think about communications and media. Exactly. Everyone's kind of like a media company. Exactly. Technology is, is uh, kind of similar. I worked a lot with uh, developers and with CTOs. And uh, often I also try to uh, get them to really talk about what they developed or how mm-hmm. it can help someone, which is a challenge in itself because it's quite abstract to people. And naturally, people kind of have like an anxiety uh, listening yes. to uh, anyone from a tech background. Um, um, uh, I can imagine you have the same when you try to teach people the how to use these new tools that have anxiety. Do I have to learn something new again? That's a challenge in itself, right? It's a big challenge. So when the pandemic um, just hit, I was working with ActionAid International. And that's one of the big considerations we had is all this tech that we're throwing at people creating more anxiety for them. Yeah. So we actually stripped back and said, what do people need? Mm-hmm. And then we had a whole program around education, not just how do we use Microsoft Teams or Google Suite or whatever you're using, but how do we also encourage the softer skills around the use of technology? Mm-hmm. How do we make sure that people are comfortable, that we're not adding more? So we actually stripped back and just removed some of the tools that existed already mm-hmm. and kept it to a suite that was going to increase everybody's productivity and also added in a layer of having somebody specifically who was somebody people could reach out to and say, I'm really uncomfortable with this mm. tool. How do I learn to use it? Yeah. So that really helped reduce the anxiety because we do tend to think tech, yeah. throwing tech at people will solve problems. No. Sometimes it doesn't. No, you, you get overwhelmed. Or yeah. I think one of the things, uh, I think it was when you were at uh, ActionAid, what I also loved is that you had this rule to not, I think during the pandemic, to not do uh, any calls on a Friday. That's the same kind of way to go about people respecting their mental health yes. and also getting time to yeah, soak up new information yes. or yeah, uh, learn. I, I find that very important because we're constantly connected. Mm-hmm. And now with the pandemic, what happened is everybody was having Zoom calls 24-7. Everybody was calling you for a meeting. Yeah. As soon as you got off those meetings, you now checked your WhatsApp to see what your family was up to because you couldn't see them. You were being invited to different groups. So at some point, I just made a rule of on Fridays, do not speak to me. It is the time (laughs) I used to think. It is the time I used to deal with things that are pending. And I still have maintained that. To this day, I have a no meetings Friday policy. Unless it's really urgent, you will not find me in a meeting on a Friday. Uh, that, that's a great takeaway. We, I think we can all learn, uh, learn from that. You've been also in situations where it's much more about a crisis. Um, for instance, um, you've been with uh, the Ebola outbreak in Liberia in 2014 doing a project there. What do you encounter? Like I can imagine you have to make rapid decisions. Working in an emergency context is something that is... A very interesting experience because when you're in the moment, you don't feel the pressure. When it's over is when you now start to feel the anxiety. So for me, it was a question of there's an outbreak of Ebola. This was 2014, 2013 or 14 somewhere. 
And we were seeing it in the news. It was in West Africa. I was in South, Southern Africa. So mm-hmm. we were seeing it in the news. Look, very people were dying mm-hmm. very quickly. Within two days, somebody's gone. And I remember getting a message on Messenger from my boss in New York saying, hey, do you want to go to Liberia? And I was like, um, sure, what's my risk? And he said, well, you're not a medical personnel, so you won't really be exposed. And I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, I knew you'd be the only one crazy <laughs> enough to say yes. Yeah. And then once I'd said yes, I was like, what have I done? I have two kids, I could die. But um, I landed and it was a very interesting situation. You were sanitizing everywhere. Now we've had COVID, so I yeah. guess that wouldn't be new, but this was very new to me. You worked at the UN, uh, for the yes, UN, right? Yes, I was, yeah. with, I was yeah. with UNICEF at the yeah. time. And so we landed in Liberia. It was me and two others from UNICEF. And that for me, and I'll tell you a story now, that for me was a very difficult post. Looking back, it was a very difficult experience, not in the sense of me being there. It was fine. Somebody had to, had to do it. I remember my children asking me, Mom, there's Ebola. Why are you going? And I say, well, somebody has to go there to stop it from spreading elsewhere. Wow. And that somebody yeah. might as well be me. So that for me was not the tough part while I was there. The tough part was what I had gone to do didn't actually work. And it was a very big lesson for me because we had built this platform in Zambia. So I worked with a brilliant software developer, We built this platform that was an SMS platform, mm. solving the challenge of young people not accessing sexual reproductive health rights because they can't culturally, mm. as a young kid, you're 13, you shouldn't be talking about sex. Mm. You're 14, why are you talking about sex? Wait till you get married. But we understood that they were having sex. So how do we provide them a safe space to have these conversations? And how do we understand what's going on so we can reduce HIV infection rates? Mm-hmm. So this SMS platform was free to young people, worked with counselors, trained counselors on a 24-hour basis. The counselors had a history, so even when they changed shifts, the young person couldn't tell the shift has changed, so they would have those conversations. Mm-hmm. We'd then apply artificial intelligence and machine learning to whatever messages were coming in to mm-hmm. pick out themes And then would also poll the young people on those themes. So if we see that there's a lot of conversations asking about condoms, we'll then send out a poll. What do we need to do about condoms? And then they'll tell us, put them in schools. Then we'll go to the government and mm-hmm. say, put condoms in schools. And then we'll also send out a lot of information around, this is how you protect yourself and so on. So Ebola happens. And the idea is that we go and replicate this hugely successful, we had... In the first year, over 100,000 kids voluntarily signing wow. up on this platform. So we're like, go to Liberia. We'll use it for information in Ebola. If it's mm-hmm. working for information on HIV in Zambia, it will work for information on Ebola in Liberia. It didn't work. Because Liberia had had a war. That region had had a civil war years mm-hmm. before. Education infrastructure was no longer viable. So most of the young people were not as literate. Literacy levels in the country were below 50%. So when we send these messages out in English, they couldn't understand. We're just basically sending them to ourselves. The young people couldn't understand anything we're saying. We couldn't understand anything they were sending back. So for me, that was a very difficult learning. And it challenged my perceptions of just because it works in Zambia, which is an African mm-hmm. country, doesn't mean it will work in Liberia, which is yeah. an English-speaking African country as well. Yeah. So there was a lot of learning there for me. We adapted. We decided to go offline. 
went into the communities. So I have amazing oh. photos of playing football with the kids yeah. in the communities. That was Ebola, but it was fine. So then we'd have the conversations in person. Yeah. So we shifted and then we ended up building mm. a different platform for health workers, which was a lot more useful in the end. But that's sort of... And then when the pandemic, when the Ebola mm. crisis ended, or when I left, the feeling of... I just survived that was very, very heavy. Yeah. So for me, whenever I go into an emergency context, when I'm in it, it's action, it's go time. Yeah. I don't feel anything. But as soon as I come back, it's always really difficult and I have to take some time to process what just happened and then start to deal with it. And also you're meeting real humans. So for example, with the Syria war, mm-hmm. I went there, I was training Syrians on data collection using digital tools. And some of the people I met were amazing. We had somebody who was a surgeon and he's now working as a volunteer to collect data because basically his hometown has been blown up. And when I went back a few months later to do other trainings around innovation, he'd actually gotten on a boat and gone as a refugee to Europe somewhere. This is a surgeon having to move as a refugee, probably getting really bad treatment. So for me, those are then the difficult moments. But and I can imagine those difficult moments also empower you to... Oh, yes. To you, you uh, yeah, that you know the purpose yes. for what you are doing yes. it for. I don't know if you've seen my LinkedIn profile. I don't think I'll ever change it because I'm standing with a lady that's in her 80s yeah, from that. South Sudan. And she had walked alone because her kids had died. So she'd walked alone for miles, I don't know, from South Sudan to Uganda. And that picture is when we just finished setting up. She'd been sleeping under a tree yeah. and we just finished setting up a shelter for her. So for wow. me, those are the moments where I'm like, I know why I do this work. That's really grateful work yes. to, to do. It's great. It's yeah. amazing when you see some of the stories, especially when you go back and you find them thriving. They've started a market store yeah. or something. So it is really interesting. How, do, how does your family deal with it when you go out and about again? <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult for them. I remember when I was going to Liberia, my dad had a whole church service held in our house, like somebody just to pray that everything goes well. So I think it's very difficult for mm-hmm. them. But they've accepted that this is the path I've chosen, and I quite really enjoy it. Yeah. So I think everybody's really very supportive. Yeah, of course, they wish the best for you. Yes, they, they just and they know it. that yeah. I thrive on this, so they they just hold their breath and I hope I come back. But I always I always do check the risks. Yeah, and somebody has to do it. Yeah, that it's it's uh, it's always good to to feel the power to to help communities to to get them uh, connected. Um, um, these organizations where you are in, I can imagine it's it's um, how digitally mature are they, or are you? Are you there also really to push the envelope? Yes. So, for example, when I left UNICEF, I joined a Danish NGO, and that was part of the work. It was making sure that we start to create an innovative mindset. So it was a lot of design thinking workshops. Mm-hmm. How do you get more creative? You've been planting beans for the last 20 years. What can you do differently? So I did do quite a lot of work around changing the mindsets. And this was in about 22 countries in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. And it was very interesting to see how excited grown-ups get when you take, you know, you have a workshop where you just have like 
Legos and you have all these straws and plasticine and figure it out, build something new. Yeah. It's always exciting to see how people who are used to sitting behind their computers suddenly get very creative once you allow them to just step out of the computer and yeah. work with their hands. Which is a nice irony coming from the CTO. I know. <laughs> I am that person. I, am, I call myself the least techie tech person you've met. I always say technology should not be what's driving you. It should mm -hmm. be what you're, the problem you're trying to solve. And then technology will be the thing that enables that to be achieved much faster. Mm. So I always try to pull people back from the tech a bit yeah. to avoid that problem I talked about earlier of finding the solution before you've defined the problem. Yeah, and I can imagine it, it, there can be a challenge within one organization, but if you come into a community, often there are different organizations already working there, maybe oh, yes. five different. They all uh, yeah, think it's important what they do. They all think the digital stills are important. Does it ever happen to that those organizations, do you get them aligned? Is there a joint plan? Yes. Uh, how, how to go about that? That is one of my biggest frustrations is when everybody's designing based on their own organization and mm -hmm. not on the user. Mm -hmm. And I remember posing this question when we were in Yumbe refugee camp because we had all these different organizations landing and we're all looking at how do we set... It's a refugee camp. It's brand yeah. new. There's yeah. nothing. So we want to make markets thrive. So some of the work I was doing there was around e-cash and making sure that markets can develop, people have access to things. So you create a sort of local economy within the camp. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And to do that, you sort of want to enable, you want to have tech, you want to be sure that people can make payments on mobiles mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But we were going around, so my organization was going around asking for, what's the price of your tomatoes? And then the next guy would come, what's the price of your tomatoes? And then the guy from the other organization would come, what's the price? That is such a horrible experience for that person. It is terrible. The other thing we'd do is go and collect data. So mm -hmm. I show up. I'm putting up shelters and I come and I'm like, what's your name? Yeah. What's, do you have a spouse? Are you married? Yes. How many kids do you have? What's your address? And we ask a bunch of questions. The next guy providing water comes and asks the exact same questions. The guys providing you maize and beans ask you the same questions. The guy from the clinic, it is crazy. And I'm thinking if you were sitting in your house in Amsterdam, yeah. And somebody from the government knocked and asked you all these personal, very personal questions like, Do you, are you married? What's your social security number or what's your passport number? What's your ID number? And he left and he said, oh, I'm from the Department of Health. And then another guy came in and said, I'm from the Department of Water. What's your name? What's your spouse? Are you married? How many kids do you? You would not, you would not tolerate that. So why would you then go into a refugee camp and think it's okay to do this to these people? So eventually we did manage to align at least on the market price information because we were checking the prices all the time. Mm -hmm. So at least we managed to align with about four or five organizations and would one of us would go out, collect the data, and then share with everybody else. So you do have to do a lot of thinking around what's the user experience in this case. And for me, that's really important because I think we must respect people regardless mm -hmm. of what their situation in life in that moment is. And we have to give them the dignity they deserve. If I wouldn't want to be treated that way, then I need to design so that it's not 
they're not being treated that way. It's always a good base to create from that, right? Like to, yeah. to uh, I wouldn't like to be treated like that. So how do you treat people? I can imagine in that context, one aspect is even more important and maybe uh, in a yeah, context of a, a safe society, when you just flat your country, if people uh, collect all your data, how do they go about data? So I can imagine uh, data privacy is really important where how people go about uh, yeah, protecting that privacy. I can imagine that's half the work to, to, to yes. protect that. And we don't. We don't. We collect the data and then somebody prints it out and leaves it on their desk. And I remember having a conversation in Uganda in the refugee camp because we went to this guy's house, maybe late 40s, gentleman, mm-hmm. and we'd, our organization had given them some small solar panels before, So he was in this little mud hut in the refugee camp, some chickens running around, and we start collecting data and ask what he needs. Mm -hmm. And he says, bigger solar panels. And I said, why would you need a bigger solar panel? It was to power his MacBook in his little hut. And I asked, why do you have a MacBook in a refugee camp? And he says, I'm a civil engineer, so I'm actually still building roads in South Sudan. I just work remotely. Uh And I said, well, why don't you just go into a town? And he said, because I might be killed if I leave this refugee camp. So he said, this refugee camp is my security because everybody knows everybody else. So if the guys, you know, come this side, Mm -hmm. at least I know that I'll be be alerted. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people coming from more situations... A lot of it is tribal, mm-hmm. so you don't know who doesn't like who. And I'm thinking, this guy is hiding in a refugee camp, and we're careless with his data. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. This data could get into the wrong hands, and that's it. He's gone. So it's, it's always a very sensitive situation, but we rarely think about it. We're just more focused on our own results. We need to go back to the donors and say, we fed 100 people. Yeah. Or we clothed 70 people. So we're not thinking about their reality and what risks we're exposing them to. Yeah, the data becomes more for fundraising rather than yes. uh, actually the yes. people where it's for. Because I can imagine it's a lot about uh, creating a safe place, yes. a safe spot for people uh, where, where technology can help you connect and help you also uh, yes. yeah, stay out of a, a dangerous uh, situation. I talked about... When I was speaking at a conference last week, I talked about a situation where we did more harm than good because we decided we're going to help women. This wasn't pregnant women. It was just women in this community, social welfare. We will give them some money. They'll feed their children. Their children Mm -hmm. will go to school. Everybody will be happy. And we had these group conversations with the women as part of the design process. And they told us, yes, yes, yes. If you give us X amount, life will be wonderful. (laughs) And as soon as we sent that cash, the number of cases of violence went up because their husbands were now feeling disempowered. So there was a lot of domestic violence happening. A very unintended consequence, but also goes back to the importance of How are you designing your programs? Are you just looking at, we have a solution, let's get it done. And so we had to stop, stop sending the money, go back to the community, design with the husbands in the room and explain why this was important and then start again. And that was much better. But we tend to do a lot of design where we cause more harm than good. There's a fun story that has nothing to do with me. 
where some non-profit went to some village, looked around and said, oh, the women are walking two kilometers to fetch water. This is horrible. Yeah. Let's do something about it. And they built wells right next to the village. And when they went back a year later, nobody was getting water from that. They were still walking two kilometers. And when they now sat down to ask, they were told that two kilometers is our me time. Yeah, That's yeah. the time we have to catch up. That's the time we have to, you know, breathe. When we're at home, we're doing chores, we're taking care of the kids, we're looking after our husbands. So sometimes we find solutions that nobody wants. We, we know, of course, about uh, a big tech, the, the Google, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Meta we now have to say, yes. uh, Microsoft, where you also see that more on a large scale developing uh, tools but where the, maybe the, yeah, they have big talk, but the, mm. they are quite small-minded about the global south. And the local expertise is often undervalued. Um, or when developers come from those communities, they're being transported to Seneca Valley and, and yes. they uh, live in a very boring suburbia and they're not really helping the place where they come from. How can we make a change in that? That's a very interesting question. One of the big things we're looking at now at work is a work stream around technology, what we're calling our responsibility which is what's our responsibility as Greenpeace in a big technological world? What are the things that are harming communities? One of them is what you've talked about, which is big tech is quite extractive. And I actually heard Chris Wiley from Cambridge Analytica say last week that big tech is acting like the colonial masters. Mm -hmm. They show up into some place, extract what they can. As soon as there's a problem, we leave. We don't mm -hmm. try to fix anything. We don't try to solve for the local context with the local context. So for me, that's a big question mark of is there a will for big tech to actually do what's right in these communities that they're extracting so much from? We've seen very little effort. Even when we've seen the metas, the Googles try mm -hmm. and set up in Africa, for example, they literally transpose that context and try and fit it into a Nairobi. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Why don't you get the local expertise in Nairobi to tell you what will work? Because we do have a lot of talent. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people in the tech space that would be brilliant. Mm -hmm. The other problem I've seen is whenever we get big ideas in the global south, it's very hard to get funding for it. Mm -hmm. And there is data on this. If you want to get funding for your idea, you need to get a white guy mm -hmm. to be part of your founders. Mm -hmm. Then you will get funding. So it's going to be very hard for the Global South to start building our own tech, mm -hmm. which might be the only way out because I don't think Meta has the incentive to push rather than just extract. Because yeah. right now they're getting everything they need from there. So why would they do better? Yeah. So that's, for me, the challenge of do we just start building out our own things? That's always a big chance, of course, the funding. Uh, we um, yeah. at the correspondent, the journalist platform, one of the correspondents also found out that if you put uh, migration somewhere in the story, yes. then you get funding out yes. of Europe. So it's often, which is, yeah, you, you kind of have to change the story a bit, which I can imagine is totally uncomfortable. It's very, uh, very uncomfortable, especially for me, because I have to work with these companies yeah. that are extracting from my home ground. So it's, yeah. very, it's a very weird place to be. Stuck in the middle. Yes. And, and you see, you need some of their services, at least in the moment. And even when you do the analysis, you realize Meta owns Instagram, owns yeah. Facebook, WhatsApp, mm -hmm. So if you want to engage supporters, for example, 
how do you do it with, yeah. when all your supporters are on their platforms? Yeah. So part of what the question becomes is, do we start to invest in the lesser known, more open type of spaces? And maybe that's the solution we need to start going for. Yeah, that's always a big challenge uh, because uh, um, and this um, education and other parts uh, face the same challenge. Uh, you, if you want to develop something of yourself or you want to have the lesser known options, they are often not, not as far developed as the, yeah. uh, the... We all know that Google's completely funded by ads and that's how yes. you have those tools. Do you want to put that in front of your children? That's, of course, a risk. Um, do you see a, uh, a change with COVID? We see that people working more remotely, but do you also see that developers then stay in, in the areas where they come from, that they don't have this idea, yes. I have to travel there and there? Yes, and it's a massive opportunity. I actually have a lot of friends sitting in Lusaka, Nairobi, mm -hmm. that are working for bigger companies now because it's become very acceptable. Mm -hmm. The challenge I'm seeing, so that's really great that yeah. you can now get a job anywhere. Yeah. The challenge I'm seeing is we're again starting to see that extractive behavior where they're being paid far less than their counterparts in Europe and the US. Mm -hmm. So we need to start working on that and fixing that because they are contributing just as much as the other teams. And what has started happening now is somebody in the US will see that opportunity and then they'll set up a firm in mm -hmm. Lusaka, hire a bunch of developers, pay them next to nothing, mm -hmm. and then get the big bucks from the companies that they're outsourcing this talent to. Oh. Yes, so that's t starting to happen a lot as well. But do you also see developers that actually work for big tech yes. but then stay in those communities? Yes. I think they have some sort of system now, right, where they kind of... Um, do the salary compared to the area where you live, which kind of sometimes, of course, makes sense. If you, uh, yeah. while you were in New York, I think often oh. lived in New York, then everything is crazy expensive. You can't uh, live in New York unless you're like really earning so much. Yeah, it's yeah. it's such a challenge. Uh, were you there often for UNICEF? Yeah, or, yeah. yeah, quite often because that's where we were headquarters. So I, a lot, I was a lot in New York, but I would always stay in New Jersey. It just didn't make sense to stay in New York. And then mm -hmm. I would just take the bus every morning. And evening. I love that when we, uh, now you joined Greenpeace International, we were t talking with um, the lady that helped you set up this uh, conversation <laughs> that we're having that um, we offered to say, hey, you were speaking at the Next Web uh, conference, hey, we can uh, do a taxi from there to our office. And she politely asked, oh, I found this bus route, does that work? <laughs> but that's actually policy, right? It is policy. Yeah. So we do not get on taxis. I can't take an Uber. You should see me with my suitcases <laughs> from the airport trying to read the maps everywhere yeah. I go. But that's really just the policy. We walk everywhere or we use public transportation just to reduce the carbon footprint. So we do have quite a lot of things that we think about as Greenpeace. Yeah. Because you can't really have zero carbon footprint mm -hmm. but we try our best to think about how can we reduce so it's things like really making sure all the accommodation that we book for ourselves are thinking about being eco-friendly mm -hmm. we do not have meat as part of our diets when mm -hmm. we're on a fisher duty we don't take taxis as you mentioned we try and make sure we pick the flight with the least carbon emissions if we have a big meeting we do a deep analysis of what will be the location where we'll have the least footprint, and that's where that meeting will be. Yeah. So it's small things like that yeah. that you have to make an effort on 
And I mean, it was really nice weather here. So walking here wasn't so bad after all. <laughs> yeah. Um, of course, I have to issue a disclaimer that it gets a bit difficult when you move to like Africa, where the infrastructure, the public transport infrastructure, for example, is not as developed. So, but even there, you have to think, what's the best that I can do? Yeah, and I also noticed from uh, from the pandemic and afterwards that, of course, that um, we are more mindful. Should this be the meeting be in real life, or could this be the yes. video call? Or um, I I do believe for 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 yeah, real in depth conversations, I really love uh, in in real life. But I can mm. imagine it it then it's also a bit you can feel conflicted because you you travel a lot, you fly a lot, yes. which is then uh, yeah, kind of offsets all the other stuff. So um, yeah. Uh, so it's always, for me, a big calculation. So, for example, I was coming on this trip to Amsterdam. So I tried to combine everything I need to do here into the two weeks that I'm here. Mm-hmm. I was meant to come back in July, but now I won't. I'll join the meeting virtually because it doesn't make sense for then for me to come back yeah. after so much. So yeah, it's always a give and take. And even when I talk about how we're looking at technology and its impact on climate, it's always a very difficult for me conversation for me as a CTO to have mm-hmm. because we have all these servers everywhere. We have yeah, all this yeah, yeah. data everywhere. All the power that it needs. And yeah. it needs a lot of power. So it's one of the things we're thinking about. So we have like an aggressive drive to reduce how much data we're storing. We are making sure that when we look at technology partners, we look at their sustainability policy. Are they running their servers on renewable sources of energy? So it's a lot of thinking through some of those things that we can change. Otherwise, data will be the new oil and then... Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, but so how, how do you go about then to finding that out of companies that you work with? Is that like a questionnaire or do you have like places where you can go to? Like how could we, how could we check another company to see not only maybe their financial status, but also their carbon footprint? So you do actually have organizations that publish some of this information mm-hmm. and they do some of this research. I can't remember any from the top of mm-hmm. my head, but if you look it up, you can. And in some instances, we do our own analysis in terms of how much data we're storing, what then does that mean? And we have explicit policies where we can't work with certain technology companies simply because... Oh, is it? Okay. Yes, because we don't believe that they're doing enough mm-hmm. to move towards clean energy. So then we have some really big tech companies that would love to work with, but until we're convinced that they're doing the best they can, we simply can't. So we yeah. find alternatives. Yeah, it's what you call the uh, ESG, right? So the yes, Environmental, exactly. Social and Government Credentials. Yes. And so that's everything from a carbon footprint to board diversity. Mm-hmm. And that becomes like a vast amount of data about the company. Yes, yes uh, it is. About its strengths and weaknesses, operations yes. and personnel. But different firms also count as different. So this yes. becomes some sort of... <laughs> Yeah, magic how people then uh, yeah up the numbers and see like, hey, we're doing really well. And what we see with tech companies yeah. is, oh, we're planting some trees. Oh, yeah. Or an no. oil, uh, oil and gas company that has the best uh, parental leave. Yeah, yes. that it kind of yes. like, a, yeah, yes. you still know. It balances. Yeah, it, it bal- <laughs> in the numbers, yes. it balance where you feel in your heart. It's like, no, this, yeah. this, this isn't right. When, when did you know it was right to really join uh, Greenpeace International? What attracted you to Greenpeace? So I got a call saying, we're looking for somebody. We're asking people to apply. Do you want to apply? And I was like, wait, 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 hold on. And I went online, looked Greenpeace up, Mm -hmm. and everything they were doing was just right up my alley. I mean, these guys are not afraid to challenge anybody. Mm -hmm. 
I've been challenging power my entire career. So it was really interesting to see people climbing buildings, yeah. blocking ships, doing all the things that a lot of people don't have the courage to do to make sure that we have a better planet. Because for me, as an African, it's been very difficult to have the climate conversations. Very, very difficult. Because I keep asking, the West developed by killing our planet. Mm -hmm. Africa is just starting to develop. Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that we're not being penalized because of all the sins of everybody else that's now at a level that we are aspiring to get to. Yeah. So it's a very difficult conversation for me. And that's why I believe technology has some of the power to make sure that we can still continue developing while taking into consideration the environment. Yeah, and of course, you you stand for digital transformation, mm -hmm. uh, but there should be time to transform, right? Exactly. It's, you see often that uh, Western countries then say, oh, you should be doing this and this, yes. like that. Yes. You're like, but how did we still have to have to make certain jumps, of course. Yeah. Uh, I really like with, uh, with Greenpeace this idea of mind bobs. I think yes. one of the co-founders, Bob Hunter, uh, coined that. A best thing in a revolution is a change yes. of consciousness. I think a lot of people, if you talk, and we said like, hey, there will be a gallery with this podcast and you can find things on verwondering.com, that you, uh, you have a really have a mental image also about the things that Greenpeace does with the boats and really going about that. Mm -hmm. So really visual things that, that uh, reach your heart and, and, and make you think again. I can imagine technology part can sometimes be challenging that like a boat going out about is really a visual big thing um, um are you thinking about the visual part of your part of the organization yes but i can't tell you about no it secret because stuff. obviously <laughs> i need to save the surprise for when you actually see it happening okay but you're working but, on the campaign yes we are working on some campaigns in the digital space we're trying out a couple of things this year and next year can't really talk about them yet But, um, I mean, it's also things like what Greenpeace UK did during um, one of the big meetings, the G7 summit, mm -hmm. where we had drones that formed, you know, the endangered species, different animals, and then eventually sort of morphed to form a message that mm -hmm. we wanted to deliver. So for me, it's also visuals using things like that i think that display was really good i hope you can look it up and find yeah, some yeah, good yeah. images for the gallery we, we we put it right in there um yes no but it's a it's a good way it's also criticized for that right like it's only this visual impactful stuff or focusing on the whales where the sharks are even more endangered yeah. but people think sharks are dangerous you get better funding for whales <laughs> um But on the other hand, like also growing up as, as a kid, seeing those images really is what was one of the first things double, uh, together maybe with WNF or yes. other organizations that really would stuck in your mind to think yes. like, indeed, like you say, um, go about, do something dangerous that someone else doesn't do, yeah. um, which you, of course, already proved by going to all these different uh, places um, of hardship yeah. where, where people uh, needed that, yeah. that help. And I think it's important for people to realize you're in media and design. Mm -hmm. It's important for people to realize that even when you're seeing that whale, there's a lot happening in the background. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we're criticized for presenting this one thing when this mm -hmm. is, but the actual work that's happening is taking care of everything, but you can't throw everything at people and hope the message will stick. No. So you have to be very strategic in what are we communicating that will get people thinking about this particular problem. You can't put everything out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, even when you're in tech, you're not going to tell everybody 
every line of code that you build to make this program no. work, you will show the program working. Yeah. So I think it's a similar scenario where everybody's expecting us to talk about everything that's yeah, very yeah, yeah. personal to them. But it's a case of we are putting this message out to create awareness. But in the background, we really are working mm. on very many different things. I think this is often a challenge in activism and, um, mm. and because you want to have the science right. Yes. And when you talk to science people, everything is very nuanced, <laughs> which <laughs> yes. totally makes sense. But you kind of have to make simplify it to yeah to design a story that people can get their heads around. Yes. And you, can't, you don't want to overload them or with the climate crisis get people in that kind of frame that they think you can't do anything about it which exactly, is which it's is bollocks big. yeah it's too big it's too which big. Is, no, it's not and i worked on climate in zambia and i was telling somebody you you put a polar bear in front of a zambian and say oh <laughs> save the polar bear nothing will land so you have to think what actually works if i walk into a community and say as a young person and this is something that young people i was working with would do they would say as a young person i can't go to school now because we have no water in the dam, we have no electricity, we haven't invested in the right type of electricity. Mm -hmm. So my father's barbershop closed. That's where we were getting the money from. Climate change is real, then it connects. Exactly. That's the sort of story you want to tell in that context. So it's always a challenge with activism. Yeah. But yeah, okay, but it's uh, of course you want to make a stand for something and you yes. want to talk about something that happens globally, but it mm. has an impact uh, locally, yeah. either with flooding or with, yes, with exactly. clouds, any kind of uh, things. Exactly. That's also why I think it's always good to have conversations with each other from all different yes. walks of, of life to, to better understand those perspectives. Um, you grew up in a small town, Zambia, in rural uh, Zambia, I can't imagine that you didn't think at that moment, I'm going to be a CTO. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't think I was going to be a CTO, yeah. even when I finished high school. It wasn't it. It was never on the plan. So in my head, I was a lawyer yeah. from the time I was age seven, I think, until I finished high school. But once I wrote my final exam, my dad sat me down and said, well, what do you want to do? I said, but you know this, I want to be a lawyer. And he mm. said, well, I'm uncomfortable with that. Do you have a second option? And I didn't. I didn't because I had settled on law. Yeah. And so he said, everybody has to have a second option in life. The boy I had a crush on at the time had mentioned computer science. So I said, <laughs> computer science, just because I needed to tell him something. And he was yeah. like, well, if you want to do law, it's 1999. Everybody will need to understand computers. So do a computers course while you wait to get into university. And I signed up for some random course. And three months later, I fell in love with it. And that was it. We were done. But yeah, I've had the childhood I had would not be one mm -hmm. that would be the traditional pathway of a global CTO. So it was very interesting. I was born in Sanfia, which is a tiny town. It's a very tiny town. It's by the lake. It's beautiful. But if you go there... It's not very big. The infrastructure is not very much. My dad was teaching there at the time. Mm. And then we moved to Luansha, which is another small town. He was teaching there. And then we moved to a slightly bigger town called Kitwe in the Copper Belt region of Zambia. So this is like where all the big copper mines are. Yeah. That's where I finished my education. I lived there, finished my education, and then moved to Lusaka for college, which is the capital city now. So I'm very much not a capital city girl. To this day, big cities overwhelm me. 
But you live in Nairobi. Oh, <laughs> I live in my house. I hide in my house in Nairobi. <laughs> and at the weekend, I head out of But town and find a mountain to go hiking in. So, yeah, it's a bit overwhelming. So, um, yes, and then things just started to fall into place. And I've really enjoyed my journey. I think I've had a really amazing journey through tech, starting from like the really, I was my first title, didn't have one because yeah. we were working out of my friend's living room. At 12, would go into the kitchen and cook something, then come back and sit and work. But then with the, with the WFP, I started as IT assistant, which is like the lowest you yeah, could start. Yeah, yeah. So I've loved going through everything. And now when I speak to anybody in my teams, I can sort of relate to where they are based on that experience that I've had over the years. Yeah, that's always good to have those really perspectives if you started yes. at the bottom. Uh, my wife is a doctor and I'm always amazed seeing how in that line of work they make you in the training also go to like uh, elderly people home. You have to work there. You have to work with the mentally ill. You have oh, to... Wow. Uh, she is pregnant now and she's, yes. she is uh, working now at the emergency center. So that's the <laughs> last place we, we <laughs> she and I would love her to be there. Yes. But but it's I always find it inspiring um, because I think it's um, yeah for, for anyone in leadership or yeah. anyone creative, like you said at the beginning, You have to talk and listen to people in these different environments. Yeah. And I think in a medical setup, they have already have a system in place where you have to do that for six months here, six months there, which yeah gives you a better mm. understanding of the challenges of these of these yeah. these other roles as as they have to work together. Yes. But One of the challenges I see is you get somebody who's coding in a corner, loves it. Because you don't know what to do with him. He's so mm -hmm. talented or she's so talented. You promote them to manager and they have no skills mm. to do that work. So I find that that's one of the challenges we face of how do you create a pathway that keeps people motivated but doesn't force them into things that they're uncomfortable with or yeah. things they're not even interested in, quite frankly. Yeah, it's uh, promoted to incompetence, right? So it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, and, yes. and also... Um, What I always dislike is this false notion of that that role or the manager role is better than the yes. other role. Yes. Like it's it's about hierarchy. Yes. Just as a company that always has to have a certain size of people and should always be growing and should always be more people. I think like is the, are those yeah. are 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 those measures of growth? Are they always the best to uh, actually evaluate what's meaningful to someone? So then yeah. I want to ask you a question as a designer: How do we redesign this? this notion that promotion to managerial position is the only way an organization. So what we, we try to do, at least in, in my own uh, design uh, agency, we try to uh, really talk much more about coaches and yes. that people either uh, find it empowering to yeah, be a leader for a group, yes. but an, another part is where you're much more leader in craft. So uh, mm. an animator or designer or developer yes. That is an example to younger uh, mm. people in the team, um, but it's still literally doing coding, designing, uh, illustrating things, um, and having. Well, we framed it now to ha to to make it uh, more clear to to people in the team that those are are different paths, and that both are equally important. And and then it's much more about oh yeah, that person she. Yeah, she, she did that for, for 10 years and, and uh, the other person came on new team. Of course, she knows a bit more about mm -hmm. it and that's how she can train. But yeah. it's more, uh, it's almost like a leading by example. So they're, they're doing the work and you, 
It's the same as like a, a policeman that would mm. then become an, uh, have to sit all day at the office yes. and then would yes. really miss being in the streets and and um, uh, chasing baddies. I don't know. But <laughs> I, don't I know, know what, what you mean. <laughs> but I really love that you code both leaders. I think yeah. that's what we should focus on. Yeah. You can be a leader in any space and anyone can be a leader. And you're right. I do miss being outside. But what, what I try to do is try and find one project that will allow me to still keep my hands on. Oh, yeah. So you you oversee all the yes. things that happen in an organization yes. and you also have like one thing that, yes, that that's fuels really close your, to my, yeah, yes. fuels your creativity. Exactly. So that's what I try to do everywhere. I try to find the one thing that I can really sink my teeth into and enjoy. Otherwise, it would just become very, very much overseeing everybody and there's the boss and i really refuse that title of the boss it's also a bit boring right yeah so you're not really creative <laughs> as a as a as a last question um is there any design that you're most grateful for any design that i'm that is such a big question there's so much in the design world that is amazing Does it have to be from the present? It can be anything, just something that pops in your mind, if it's close to your heart. I really, and this is going to be a bit controversial, I really love the fashion space in Africa. Mm -hmm. I think we have a lot of patterns, a lot of designs that are really interesting and intriguing. The reason I say it is going to be controversial is do you know that all these fabrics are made here? Yeah, in the Netherlands, right? Uh, I find that Flisco, yeah. I find that so odd. That's really weird. It's, yeah. But I never yeah. see any yeah. of you guys wearing any of no. this. No. Why? Yeah, I was I was amazed. I think it's, it's called Fisco, right? Yes. Yeah. And, Fisco. And I think it's in the south of the Netherlands, and they uh, design all these fabrics yes. that are huge all over Africa. Yes. Um, and they're beautiful fabric. Yeah, that's beautiful fabrics. But I'm always like, why aren't we making our own? Yeah. But I think I'm really grateful for that design. I will say that because it makes life just that much happier for me. Oh, thank you. <laughs> that's great to hear. I loved having you here. Thank you for your thank time. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Hi, I'm Brenna Foster, part of the team that works on Memberful Design. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Now, we want to hear from you. We're researching what makes communities, memberships, and movements so powerful. Or in short, how to better design for belonging. You can help by sharing your own experiences in our first listener survey. Go to memberful.design community or click the link directly in your show notes to complete the survey. It only takes a few minutes to share your wisdom, and it's completely anonymous. Even better, we'll share takeaways on a future show. So keep listening, and let's learn together. Many thanks from the entire Memberful Design team.